West Bulls, good morning. Well, thank you for joining us this morning. I, uh, this is one of those mornings where I know it would have been easy to do what I did this morning. I opened the blind and I went, Kara we, Kara, we don't have to go to church today. She's like, well, pastor, yes, we do. So anyhow, thank you for being here. Uh, before we dive in, I just want to remind you, this week actually ends our uh, promotion for the ticket sales for the Christmas show that we have every single year here. And... Um, one of the things we're asking you to do as a church is, and, and for all of us to do, is consider, consider this BOGO deal we have going on, this buy one, get one, where you can purchase tickets for your family and then you'll get that many tickets free as well. And the object is not to make your family half price. It's to actually take those extra free tickets and go and carry out what we've said every week that we're about as a church, that this is a place where we want to connect with Jesus connect with people, and connect people with Jesus. So that BOGO deal ends uh, the 31st at midnight. So just go into the checkout um, at the, on our site, and you can enter the promo code BOGO19, as in babies only grill onions. BOGO19, that's actually what it stands for, just so you know. Uh, BOGO19, and it'll, it'll discount your tickets at the checkout. So all that being said, will you pray with me, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father. Thank you, uh, once again, for the opportunity just to come together and to uh, obviously connect with one another, but to connect with you. And so whatever is going on, there are millions of things that feels going on in all of our lives, we pray that you would just somehow make a connection this morning. Maybe it's, maybe it's getting all that out of the way so we can hear you, or maybe it's connecting some parallels between your word and what it is in front of us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the last couple of weeks and into this next month, we've been talking about this idea of thermometers and thermostats. And the whole idea behind that is that without help and without something beyond ourselves, it is too easy. It's like our default mode to walk through life existing like a thermometer. That is, if, if the conditions around us heat up, then we tend to heat up till we reach a boiling point. And if things cool off, we tend to get icy, icy cold inside. And in fact, let me see if I could maybe throw you an example of this. I'm going to put something up on the screen that uh, many of you, this, this raises the temperature inside. In fact, some of you remember these days, right? And some of you are in these days right now where you're dealing with algebra. And then for some of you, just the wonderful news for you is it's coming. Now, I know most, most in here... The temperature is probably rising right now because this was just not a fun memory. This is not your thing. There are about three of us that actually like, are like, yeah, this is like a game. Like, I like church. And I know I'm one of those. And the other one is up there. It's my dad because he's the one who taught me how to, how to deal with these problems. And then maybe there's like one other person. But it, it never started there for me. In fact, we had many tearful conversations around the dinner table. And not my tears, my dad's tears, because I was that irritating to work with when it came to getting this. But isn't it true that whether it's a math equation or it's just a problem in life, isn't it true that these problems have the tendency to just overwhelm us? I mean, you look at it and it's like, where do I even start? How do I even simplify this? How do I get this to where I can actually deal with it? 
In fact, I think, as I, as I think back to my experience with learning algebra, it really, any problem in life, affects us in three distinct ways, okay? The first is it tends to skew our view of those that are trying to help us. I mean, do you remember the first time you got frustrated with your homework, and suddenly it wasn't just the homework? It's like math teachers were like evil, right? And it was like, ugh, why do they even exist? And if it wasn't for them, you know, why, I don't even need this anyway. And then, and then what would happen is it would also affect other things that you're walking through. I mean, isn't it true that when your brain is just trying to work on a problem, that it is so easy for it to take over every other piece of life? I mean, I still remember in junior high learning algebra. And I, I mean, some guys ran up to me one day and they said, Nathan, we picked basketball teams for recess, and guess what? You got picked first. And that would be like exciting news for somebody my size in junior high, and, and now actually. And I remember just thinking, oh, polynomials. It's like all I can think about right now, and I can't celebrate anything else. And then I remember this girl walked up and she said, Nathan, I heard you like me, and I like you too. And I couldn't celebrate that. I was like, ugh, algebra. And, and then finally, I remember even, I remember getting home and my parents saying, Nathan, you're our favorite child. And I was like, just algebra is just really like consuming me right now. I'm just kidding, Kyla. My sister's up there. Anyhow. But the other way it affects us is we tend to justify our view, don't we? Like, if I don't get that problem, then didn't you maybe change life plans? Like, your plan for life just completely changed. I remember my parents saying, Nathan, you want to be a firefighter when you grow up, you're going to have to learn math. And what did I do? You know what? I don't want to be a firefighter anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to win the lottery. That's my plan. I'm going to win the lottery, and then I'm going to maybe become a philosopher or a, a gangster rapper or something like that. And um, I tried, and that didn't work out. But what happens is when we get faced, when life faces us with a problem that just looks so complex and so confusing, we kind of start existing like a thermometer. And we just register the conditions in front of us. And so these last couple weeks and this next month, we're looking at this letter that this guy wrote, this guy named Paul. And when you look at Paul, and when you look at the circumstances that Paul was in, Paul was no thermometer. Paul, as, he, as you look at his letter to the church in Philippi, to the Philippians, he, he really existed differently more like a thermostat. And that's the idea we've been talking about. And as you look through his letter, it just has thermostat written all over it. It basically says, you do not have to register the conditions around you. And it's one thing for him to say that, but when you look at where he was, he was in prison and he was facing trial and he may very well have died at the end of it, while, but he had no way of knowing. But as he wrote it, it's as if he was saying to them, and it's as if he's saying to us, to the church today, you don't have to go through life like a thermometer. That God can somehow have the hand, his hand on the control of somebody he has designated and transformed into a thermostat to affect the climate of wherever he has somebody. And so as I thought back to this math equation, I, I suddenly was reminded that my dad my dad, one of the ways he taught me and developed me in, in like learning to deal with this stuff was he was always talking about simplifying it down to really this like a, a formula. You guys, maybe you remember the Pythagorean theorem, a squared plus b squared equals c squared. If you could get to that formula, you could figure out the answer. 
And in a very real way, and we're not talking about math this morning, okay, just to ease your minds, but in a very real way, Paul looked at the church and he said, look, thank you for the gift. They had sent him a financial gift, but he had been made aware that the church was facing some issues. And as he stood back in this prison cell, he looked at the church and he said, you're facing an issue that I need to bring you back to the solution. That if you, if you were to just look at what is going on inside the church and what's facing the church, that there is a solution that you've got to just keep coming back to. And as long as you keep coming back to that solution, you will avoid live, going through this life like a thermometer. In fact, we, we ended near the end of chapter 1 last week, and I want to pick up right there because he immediately points at that solution. Look at what he says. Verse 27 of chapter 1, he says, that, uh, he says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that word gospel means good news. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news. And that phrase, really in the original language, it actually designated a sort of citizenship. He said, act in line, live in line with your true citizenship. Now, these were people that would have taken great pride in their citizenship as, as people who lived at Philippi. They were like a, a colony of Roman soldiers and ex-Roman soldiers. And so their way of dealing with things was with that mindset. And Paul said, no, you have this other citizenship, one from the heavenly realms that lines up with good news, that everything you do can actually align with the good news of Jesus Christ. I, as I read that, I was reminded years ago of this kid who graduated out of the high school group, and he went off to college and he was, he was born and raised here in the United States. But when he went off to college, he got there, and I don't know what went through his mind, but he decided to start talking in an Australian accent. And he did this throughout the semester. In fact, every single conversation he got into, he decided to just maintain this Australian accent. And uh, if you knew him, it would make way more sense. But anyhow, I won't go into that. He kept this up throughout the semester. Finally, at finals, at winter break, he decided, you know what? I'm done doing this. And he, just, he, he spoke to somebody just w in his normal way of speaking. And he actually had an article written about him in the school paper that said, Australian guy isn't really Australian. And I heard that and I thought, I'm so proud of what the youth group goes on to do in life. It's, it's just amazing. But it's so true that we often act as though we're citizens of a world that Jesus says, no, there's, there's another citizenship that you have. And as you look, as you look at, and as we'll see in the coming weeks, there were some issues going on at the church at Philippi. And Paul, looking at what was facing the church and the opposition to the church and to Jesus, he said the answer to those small problems within the church and the big opposition that's facing the church, it's the same solution. It's the gospel news of Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, he addresses this big picture for them. In, in verse 27, he continues. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, contending as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. 
Now, do you notice the nature of what he's saying here? There is a we component to it. He says, I want you to contend. I want you to strive together as one. And that's a lot different. That's way different than our default when we wake up in the morning, isn't it? See, he's saying operate as a we, but how do we wake up in the morning? Me. We think, I'm going to take care of what I have going on. And we think about our problems, and we think, how am I going to figure this out? But Paul is standing back in this prison cell, and Nero is the emperor, and he can tell where this is going, that this is a hostile government toward Christians. And Paul's saying, look, if you have any hope, if we have any hope of furthering the good news, the solution for people, then we've got to operate with a we mentality. We've got to get away from individualism. It's not that you're not valued personally by God. It means that it's that and collectively. There is something God wants to do with the we, with the body of the church. He continues. He says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ. And this is such a strange saying. It's been granted to you as though it's a gift. On behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are now going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. See, isn't it easy to look at Paul and read Paul's writing and go, well, that was Paul. And that was what Paul faced. And Paul was like this super disciple. And, and that's not me. And Paul says, no, actually, everything you're going through is the same thing I'm going through right now. And he says, there's actually a gift that when you collectively, as the we, as the body, suffer, God uses that. God uses that. God works through that to share his good news with the rest of the world. And Paul's getting at something here. He's saying, look, to the church, to the temperature around you, that is the temperature of the culture that you sit in, the temperature of the community that you sit in, that you exist in, the temperature all around you is affected by the temperature between you. That is, the temperature out there is going to get real boiling hot or real icy cold if the temperature here does the same. There is something God wants to do in the culture, but he's going to start with the body of the church. I, I was so reminded of this, and maybe there's no better example. Abraham Lincoln when Abraham Lincoln came into the presidential office, you know, he had had a history of perceived failures that are well-documented and well-known, but there was something so different about Abraham Lincoln than any president before him because when he finally was elected to the presidency, you know what he did? He turned, and in forming his presidential cabinet, his advisors, those who would walk next to him, he did not pick a bunch of guys that lined up with all of his views. In fact, he appointed four guys that were his, his opponents in the presidential race. Four guys to his cabinet. And then he went and got some other guys that were their opponents. And none of these guys really liked each other very much. But as Abraham Lincoln stood back and he said, you know, civil war is upon us. And the temperature of what's going on in our world is about to hit a boiling point. He stood back. And he said, I'm not just going to get people who think like I do. I'm going to get some rivals. 
And this woman named Doris Goodwin, she wrote a book called Team of Rivals, and it was about Lincoln and his cabinet. And here's what she had to say. She said, how was it possible to coordinate these inordinately prideful, ambitious, quarrelsome, jealous, supremely gifted men to support a fundamental shift in the purpose of the war? The best answer can be found in Lincoln's compassion, self-awareness, and humility. He never allowed his ambition to consume his kind-heartedness. In his everyday interactions with the team, there was no room for mean-spirited behavior, for grudges, or personal resentments. He welcomed arguments within the cabinet, but would be greatly pained, he warned his colleagues, if he found them attacking one another in public. Such sniping would be a wrong to me, and much worse, a wrong to the country, he said. The standards of decorum he demanded were based on the understanding that they were all involved in a challenge, listen to this, too vast for malicious dealing with one another. This sense of common purpose had guided the formation of the cabinet and would now sustain its survival. Wow, that's, you see, that's somebody who gets what Paul's getting at here. That if we're going to affect, if God's going to affect the temperature of the culture in front of us and around us, well, it's going to be directly affected by the temperature between us. And so you hear that and you think, okay, so how do I affect? How does God want to affect the temperature between us? And as you continue through Paul's letter into chapter 2, we see our answer. Listen to this, beginning of chapter 2. He says, therefore... Therefore, that is what I just said is now connected to what I'm about to say, Paul, Paul's getting at. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, and we'll get to the implication of it in just a minute, but just look at this list for a minute. Encouragement, comfort, fellowship or common sharing, tenderness and compassion. Aren't those things, if you were to just be honest, don't we look to other people to receive those more than right here with our Heavenly Father? I mean, isn't it true? And especially in the church. Shouldn't it be expected? Absolutely. But Paul is reminding them. Look at this phrase. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. Where is the source, Paul is asking? Where is the source of the encouragement? Where is the source of the comfort, of the fellowship, of the tenderness, of the compassion? Paul would say, before you look here, look here. Look between you and him. He said, that's where it's found. And he uses this word, if, that if, if we read it in English, we think, we think well, if it's there, as, as though Paul is questioning whether it would be there. But as you look at the original language, his word that he uses is a lot closer to our English word, since you have encouragement. Because you have encouragement and comfort and tenderness and compassion. In other words, I want what happens here to flow from what happens here. And having listed all that, he says, this is what it would produce. Then, make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Well, Paul, how does that look? And now he's going to drill down and get very granular. 
He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And the reason this works is because of what we just said. When I've been supplied here, then I don't have to ask for it, demand it, look for it, get ambitious, get conceited about trying to get that love here. He said, here's the source, this is the overflow. And then he starts into this next passage that has been widely referenced by theologians, but I want to stop on this first sentence. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That is a mindset of humility. A mindset of, I'm so connected here that I can give right here. I can become servant right here in my relationships with other people. And Paul is adding on to what he was saying. He said, look, the temperature around you is affected by the temperature between you, these interpersonal relationships, but the temperature between you is affected by the temperature within you. That is, the temperature here is affected by the temperature here. I was reminded of this, of this um, really, there's this really special date that my wife and I like to go on twice a year. We do more dates than that, but there's a really special date called putting up and taking down the swamp cooler at our house. And the first time that we ever put up the swamp cooler, I was so, I was so proud of myself. I mean, I was, I was sitting here thinking, okay, we've got, got to get this thing into the window that's like... Uh, eight to ten feet up in the air, and surprisingly, I know you look at me, you're like, well, Nathan, why didn't you just do this? Yeah, it came a few, few feet short. So I rigged up these, this, like, pulley system, um, in, in, like, in the overhang of the house, and it was, it was incredible till like, a year ago when it fell out. But anyway, um, I remember I had hoisted this swamp cooler, and our method was I'll hoist the swamp cooler, and then Kara would just guide it till I got it to the level of the window, and then I would hold it, and she would run inside, and she would guide it into the window, and then we'd connect these chains so it wouldn't fall. Okay, sounded brilliant, looked brilliant in my mind, on paper. So first time we do this, I realize, you know, the amount of weight you've got to lift with a pulley system is directly correlated with how many pulleys you've got in there at different points. Well, I didn't do enough pulleys. So... I, I'm pulling this thing, and I'm just bearing basically the whole weight of this thing. Kara's guiding it up, and she gets it, she gets it aligned with the window, and I'm holding it, and I was like, I, can't, I cannot hold this much longer. You run in and, and go guide it in. And she, she's like, okay. <laughs> and and I, because I was just under duress and uh, wasn't thinking, I, I went, um, can we hurry it up a little bit? And she turned around and she said, oh, well, aren't you strong enough? And I was like, well, I could be if you could run a little faster. And she's like, well, look at the time. I got to go run errands. So, um, and I'm standing there. And I was like, oh, honey, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You know, run in there. And I thought, isn't, as I read this, I thought, isn't this what we do when we get under duress, when we're feeling the intensity, when we're feeling the heat, we tend to take it out here. So now, when we're going to put the swamp cooler up or take it down, we always ask each other, 
How's your relationship with Jesus? <laughs> because if you're good here, then I know we'll be good here. And Paul, with having put that idea in mind, it's so interesting because Paul had gotten word that there were maybe some, some division and some discord within the church. And so Paul, where he moves next in this chapter, is, is this grand passage that theologians and scholars and authors over centuries have highlighted, and there could be about 20 sermons in this passage, but for our purposes, I, I want you to think about why would Paul put this right here? Well, maybe it's because Paul is pointing at the solution, that whether it's division with somebody in the church or whether it's the oppression and the opposition that the church was facing as a whole back then and even now, Paul says, let me bring you back to the solution. This is not an algebra formula. This is something much bigger. That as I look at the quarrels within the church, and as I look at the opposition from culture, Paul says, you got to come back to this. Because if you'll come back to this solution, guess what? Your temperature your temperature will be good here, and then it'll flow to here, and then the temperature here will flow out there. Listen to what he says. Verse 5, he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And watch the movement of this passage. He says, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And Paul's highlighting something that, remember, Jesus came from glory, Jesus came from glory, and then there's another movement to verse 7 and 8. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, there's this movement where Jesus goes from his glory, and then he comes to our story. He didn't have to, but he said, I'm going to move from God's glory into the human story. I'm so reminded of this whenever, whenever I read something about Warren Buffett. It, many of you, I'm sure, no doubt know who Warren Buffett is, one of, the one of the most wealthy men on the face of the earth. And when you read about Warren Buffett, I'm always struck and I always kind of giggle that, that oftentimes an article is written about the kind of car Warren Buffett drives. For years and years and years, his family tried to get him to upgrade to a newer car, but he stuck with this 1992 Oldsmobile that he just loved driving. In fact, as of 2008, he was driving that car. Here's a guy who could have anything. He was rich beyond rich. He's rich beyond rich, and he could drive anything, and yet his family's trying to get him to upgrade. He said, I, I, don't, need to, I don't need anything new. I don't need to show how wealthy I am. And then you'll read articles about his house, and you'll read articles about his spending habits, and he still lives in the exact same house that he bought back in the 1950s or 1960s in Omaha, Nebraska. He says, I don't, I don't need anything more. And his spending habits are surprisingly frugal. And I thought, wow, that is, that is just a fraction of what Paul is saying Jesus did. He came from the rich glory of heaven into the story of humankind. And then Paul says, but there's, there's another part. There's another movement to the story. Verses 9 through 11, he says, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place 
and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Paul says, do you see the movement there? I mean, as you look at the equation, the problem in front of you, the great hope you have is that you've been given this glorious inner strength that if you have trusted Jesus Christ, he says, guess what? Your story came from glory because you're tied to Jesus. He meets you in your story and it returns to glory. He says, you don't have to fear. You don't have to fear any problem before you. And it's as if Paul is saying to the church, so don't get caught up. Don't set aside that glorious story that God has now placed inside you because of discord and individualism. There's no problem that the story of Jesus Christ does not address. There's no issue that it's not the solution to. And so with that in mind, let me bring us back to where we started this morning. Whatever happens, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Would that change your conduct just a little bit? I mean, if that story was in mind, would that change your conduct and my conduct? I think it would. I think as I look at the problems or, or the, the algebra equations of life that are in front of us, I think I'd approach it a little bit differently. And I think I'd be reminded that the solution is that good news. I think the thing that really captures me about this is that 12 times in the passage we're looking at this morning, 12 times, Paul says the word you. But as you look at his word you, it actually is you all. He says, look, this is not an individualism thing. There are implications to what Jesus does right here affects you all. And it affects something beyond the walls of the church. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. He says, look, there's a temperature out there that God wants to adjust. And it's going to start with a temperature here, which is going to start with a temperature here. When we were first married, I, and, and I'll end here, I was reminded of, uh, we had this, we had like days upon days upon days in a row where we would wake up and there's just no hot water. And uh, I remember thinking, what is going on here? And my dad came over and he took a look at things and we found out in our storage closet of our condo, our hot water heater, you've maybe heard of a pilot light, it's the same thing as like a punk that you light fireworks with. This pilot light kept going out. And I'm sitting here going, okay, do we need to get a whole new water heater? And we realized that the wind was constantly blowing into that storage closet. And every single time the wind picked up, about 12 hours later, we had no hot water. And so <clears throat> what happened was he said, listen, we've got to find a way to just block the wind. And I believe that Paul's emphasis to the church is that if, if this is going to start anywhere, if this is going to start anywhere, you've got to keep that pilot light inside flowing. There's this steadfast warmth. There's this steadfast, steadfast preservation of that pilot light that has got, got, got to have this access to God, that he can use it 
to adjust the temperature. And so with that in mind, with all of that in mind, whether it's, whether it's uh, at the presidential level as we think about Abraham Lincoln or math or uh, if you need help taking down a swamp cooler, my wife and I would be happy to come over and help you. But the temperature out there is going to be affected here, which is affected here. Will you close with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are so reminded every single day that you are there steadily whispering to us. You are steadily wanting that time with us because it's in that time with us that you truly do form us and you truly shape us and you truly affect us. And so as we take these words, as we hear these words from Paul this morning, would you write on our hearts not just the latest problem that we're dealing with, but would you write on our hearts your good news solution? Because it's not just a solution for the really, really big things in life. It's a solution that affects everything. Lord, write that on our hearts in the coming days, weeks, and months. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.